Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Talk EU podcast. I'm Josina Kamerling, Head of Regulatory Outreach, EMEA for CFA Institute. And with me today, I have Sarah Maynard, who is our Global Head of External Inclusion and Diversity Strategies and Programs at CFA Institute. Sarah is a really experienced professional. She has been leading on this subject for many, many years, not only just at the Institute where she, she leads a team and, and a portfolio of recognized industry, external inclusion and diversity initiatives with local societies, with stakeholders, regulators. And of course, now she has just come out and published the diversity and in inclusion uh, codes uh, for the USA in Canada. And I think we hope to see that in Europe and other regions of the world quite soon. Sarah worked for a long time in the asset management in industry at Majedi, a global investment firm based in the UK. And she focused on environmental, social and governance issues, I'm sure, before the time that it became even fashionable to speak about these subjects. So she has been really at the forefront of stakeholder, all the, the areas that people used to think were soft, which of course they aren't, they're really at the core of what we need to be thinking of. And no time like today, I would say. You also served as Director of Career Development at CFA Society UK, and you were a founder of its Women's Network, which is now the Inclusion and Diversity Network. So again, Sarah, long experience, long professional experience, but also personal interest, I think, in this topic. And I really look forward to hearing your views on how we can incorporate even more diversity and inclusion in an industry that is still noted for its white collar male attitude. And I remember, I'll just take you back about four or five years ago, I interviewed an asset manager, a CFA charter holder who had been 40 years working in the business at the end of her career. And she, she seemed to think that we were actually regressing, which is a really sad would be a sad story if that were the case. At the very top, Christine Lagarde, but also Murray McGuinness, Commissioner for DG FISMA at the European Commission, have been, been at the forefront of pushing women again and, and in general diversity and inclusion to the forefront of what it is to be in financial services and to serve for the good of society. We know that the European Union is keen on social inclusion. It's at the forefront. We have a social model. It's very deeply ingrained into the treaty. And Commissioner McGuinness, in her parliamentary hearing before being elected, said this. I welcome the strong support of this parliament for gender mainstreaming. I welcome the work of the European Parliament Committee, Economic and Monetary Affairs on this pressing member states to address gender mainstreaming in their nomination process for the European supervision authorities. I'm keenly aware of the need to do more to address the imbalance in the roles and status of women in many areas of the economy. In the financial services sector, especially at board level, management level, there are very few women. More broadly, I'm passionate about the social dimension in the financial stability, financial services and capital markets union. And I think this really is absolutely essential when we know what the European Union stands for. Society is changing. We've had COVID for the last two years and the last week or more, we've been living in war on the continent. And it, it's highlighting the imbalance in society. It's highlighting that the G part and the S part of ESG are very, very important. This podcast is appearing on International Women's Day. Diversity is not just about women. It's about everyone who is different 
And it's about not having companies that have the same type of profile to do the job. I, I call to mind the Dutch regulatory authority, the AFM, who with behavioral scientists and sociologists looks at sales teams inside the asset management industry and inside banks to look and make sure they're diversified enough. Customers are all different. Why shouldn't those who advise be different? And I think that's very important. So Sarah, what type of societal changes is the investment industry expected to face? And what role can the CFA Institute DEI code play in this change? Okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Great introduction, Jacina, and you know, very keen to endorse the position that we've seen from leaders like Mairead McGuinness. So I think probably just to take a step back, let's just start with the position that we have at CFA Institute. We work for the ultimate benefit of society. And of course, we know that talent is equally distributed across all populations. So if an industry wants to access that talent, and that's always a huge preoccupation, then it's actually got to be very intentional about how it makes itself fully inclusive to make the most of the folks that it attracts and also is very cognizant of those that it doesn't attract because that also means that to that client point you made, we're not going to be able to understand and serve those clients and that's of course what the industry is all about. Um, so the way that we sort of think about this is you know, societal changes are absolutely happening across all, all economies but particularly when you think about the expectations of um, younger demographics around simply the concept of diversity. They are far, far more accepting. What is normal to them was perhaps you know, seen as the exception to several generations ago. And there is a danger that we have an industry that's just stuck in the past. And that, of course, is not good for innovation, creativity. And of course, it's not good for, for times of stress, like the ones we face now. So what we really see is that the code is there to enable the industry to move forward in a structured and accountable way with a particular emphasis on the last. So it, the principles really help the industry to formulate the way forward. The last principle, which is about measurement, uh, holds it to account. So that's how we see CFA Institute contributing to the industry via the code in, in a structured way to meet these wider societal trends. So thank you for mentioning those six principles and, and holding to account. And I would remind our listeners that, of course, CFA Institute uh, develops as codes and standards for its members. It has an ethics code. And indeed, this morning in, in a radio interview, when talking about ethics and fiduciary behavior in these times of stress and war, it is clear that codes can help and help the work that regulators do. It is important to underpin both soft regulation with hard regulation and make the society move in, in that way. So when we take a deeper look at the key principles, there are six principles in your DNI code. Could you go into them a little bit for us? Yes, with pleasure. So the way that we thought about this, and we did, as, as you've indicated, take the precedent that we already have in our existing codes and standards, particularly things like the Asset Manager Code, which is principles-based. And so it was really to give structure to what can be a very formula, unformulated and, and really overwhelming challenge. So the way that the principles work is the first four are about the investment professional life cycle. They start with the pipeline, and we have very deliberately chosen language about expanding the pipeline because we believe that a lot of the you know, perceived sense of lack of talent is actually precisely because the industry has been slow to wake up to this idea that talent is 
available in all populations. And so we want to ensure that the industry collaborates on expanding the pipeline. The second principle is about talent acquisition, and that's from beginning to end. We've made that one separate because this is organizationally specific, and we want all people processes to fully integrate aspects of DEI. We then move to promotion retention because we know from our own research, like the experimental partner research report we put out last summer, that the industry is not good on retention, that typically when we do expensively manage to recruit people, they then do not stay, particularly women and people of color. So in order to address that, there is a lot of work to do around retention. The leadership principle, which is the fourth, is both about leadership at a senior level, because of course that's crucial, and I know we're going to talk a bit more about that, but of course it's also about the behavior of every single individual, because this is you know, also about individual accountability. Although the code is written for organizations, there are some clear learnings for individual members of the industry as well. The fifth is about the influence. We live and work in financialized economies in the EU, and therefore finance can have a huge influence, not only in its own industry, but outside. The sixth is, as we've just mentioned, the measurement piece, the holding to accounts, the counting the individuals, and also acknowledging that cultural change comes from that attention to those numbers. It's not just the numbers by themselves matter. It's that the process of counting, of recognizing, building trust that people feel able to self-identify. Um, all of those things are part of the wider cultural shift this code is designed to drive. I think it's very important to, to see it as really a cultural shift. I remember when I started at CFA Institute back in 2013, I was involved in a trust survey which was done together with the economist intelligent unit and uh, city firms but also individuals top level middle management were interviewed seeing what was needed to change trust of investors into the industry and there was a comment from the uh, hr association of the city the the, the main response person responsible for that who said if you really want to get trust back you need to change the recruitment and change the people working inside the industry, which is a very harsh and very strong comment. Of course, at that period, diversity and inclusion was, it was being talked about, but it wasn't as predominant as today. I think also when you look at some of the figures that you have in, in surveys that you've done on, you know, the state of, of women in finance, let's say, what are your conclusions that you draw on sort of generations, but also maybe people doing the CFA chart or are, are women doing it earlier than men? And for what reason? Sure. It's a really interesting one. So we know that overall, if you took global numbers, women have been stuck at around 20% of, of the industry, according to our data, for you know, a period, extended period of years. We are starting to see some changes. And what gets quite interesting is when you look into say, markets like, the, like Europe, um, in fact, the EMEA region more generally, and what you're actually seeing is that women are starting to be attracted to the industry. They are joining particularly as candidates. Um, what we tend to find is that women overall make career decisions younger than men do. So they tend to both choose a career, but also self-deselect. And if they don't see an attractive vision of the industry when they're in their late teens, then the chances are they won't then revisit it, whereas men are much more likely to come back to it, which is why typically we've seen women have gone into doing the CFA to book become candidates younger than men, although they are certainly as well qualified. And we know that typically, again, women actually do better academically than men. Um, that's to an increasing extent. So there's an interesting phenomenon going on. 
COVID somewhat interrupted that trend. So we did see ages ticking up over the period of COVID. Just in the same way, we also saw women coming out of the industry because quite simply the conflicts of family demands, you know, that they were essentially being required to, uh, to take on more than men. And this isn't just about having children. It is also about having wider caring responsibilities. Another interesting feature that we saw during COVID, which I think speaks to the cultural differences we, we can see between people of different races and ethnicities, is that for women of colour, they tended to take the lion's share of caring for elders. So they were therefore more under pressure and more likely to step away from the industry as a result of that. On the other side of this, I would also say that we have recorded, even in markets like Japan, where the you know, tradition, traditional hierarchies are so intense, and nonetheless, we see more men taking responsibility for their children during the COVID period. So I think we saw it's one of those sort of interesting shuffles where it isn't even two steps forward, one step back. It was kind of one step one side, one step the other. Mm. Um, and that actually there are some good trends that we really want the industry to be encouraging, normalizing parental leave for example, but then we also need to be just much, much more intentional about how we keep women in the workforce. And obviously hybrid working has some huge implications there. I think, you know, the, the COVID period has been a le steep learning curve for boards. In our CFA Institute Investment Firm of the Future report, we underline that in order to collect the positive benefits of diversity, firms should look to diversify their people on multiple dimensions. And you spoke a little bit about that, but including ideas, gender, ethnicity and knowledge. Now, do you see commitment from organizations to diversify their boards or leadership teams and then it filtering down or is it still very much at the idea stage? I think there's a bit of a bifurcation going on, actually. I think there are some organizations who are absolutely convinced that this is the way to go and they really feel very strongly that this accords with the direction, their overall business strategy. And those I think are likely to be the most successful because it's not an overlay, it's actually integrated. So business success does look diverse. However, there are others who may be doing it in a more performative way. So they've made some non-executive appointments and that they may regard as the job done. But of course, what that doesn't do to the pipeline piece and the pipeline matters all the way through because if women and uh, minorities aren't being encouraged to join the industry at the beginning, there will be nobody to sit on those boards. So, you know, it, it matters at every stage. But as I say, we are seeing a really good, very positive response. In fact, we will be announcing a group of signatories very soon. And we're also seeing, I'm really pleased to report, you know, a great level of interest about, well, when are we going to launch the code in EMEA? So this is a watch this space, but it's very encouraging to see the support. I was going to ask you for the reaction, and I am so glad that in EMEA there's been strong reaction. What about regulators? Have the, how have they reacted to the to the launch of the code? Well, we've had some in fact, most of the conversations we had were prior to the launch of the code. So we were consulting. We had a public consultation last summer, but we also did a lot of consulting. We went to talk to a whole range of folks who are really been in the Canada and, and the US. And of course, you know, we have quite strong relationships with, you know, through you, Jacina, in the EU and indeed with the FCA in the UK. So all of these conversations have been very live. In fact, I've got one coming up shortly in um, the Middle East. So, you know, we're seeing very strong interaction with regulators. What I think, of course, is the interesting piece is much as regulators can encourage this, and it's important, of course, that they do, 
this should be something the industry does for itself because regulating the UTI doesn't necessarily deliver you. And, and also the industry can move a lot faster as it proved during COVID. So this is really what we want to see, that the industry takes charge of it, leads itself forward and, and actually develops momentum from here. And I think your last point was so incredibly important. You should take action yourself. And I'm going to quote Maraid McGuinness again in last year's International Women's Day. She then said, those of us who have a platform must speak up, not for those who can make it and will, but for those who struggle and may not make it, but are ambitious enough to try. And I think that sums up what we try to do with diversity and inclusion. Sarah, thank you so much for this very frank and open conversation. We wish you luck with the move of including the DEI code in EMEA and elsewhere. And I look forward to speaking to you again. To my listeners listening to this podcast, but also to the next one, which will be on geopolitics and the economy. A very topical at this moment, so stay tuned to that. And this podcast will also be published on LinkedIn. And when we post it, you will actually also get a link to Sarah's surveys and the DEI code. So thank you very much for listening and to the next time. Thank you. Thank you.